I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Earlier this year, I sat down with Frank Furman, the COO of PadSplit, a recent Reconstruct Challenge grant recipient out of Atlanta. Affordable housing uh, for many is a major issue across the country, and much of the emphasis that we see is on solutions for new unit creation for low-income families. But in many communities, there's existing housing stock, and the real opportunity is to make that existing stock more affordable. As such, PadSplit is a company helping landlords turn rental properties into pay-by-the-week rooming houses. Rather than building new buildings, PadSplit works with property owners who are renting out single-family homes. They agree to fix up the house to a certain standard, and then PadSplit screens potential residents and rents out each room, including utilities, internet, laundry, furnishings, for around $550 a month. For a property owner who might have been renting the whole house, let's say for $1,200, it's a way to make more money. But for renters, it's a way to save. The average PadSplit member makes only $21,000 a year, and saves 460 bucks by renting through the startup. When almost 50% of Americans don't know where a $400 emergency bill might come from, a reduced cost in housing can go a long way in improving prosperity for them and increasing the opportunities that they see for themselves and their families. For Frank, who has spent some time in traditional consulting and two tours in Afghanistan with the U.S. Marine Corps, coming to PadSplit was a rather circuitous journey. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and father was a physician. My mother worked for Villanova University. And, you know, part of the whole Naval Academy story was that I, I really kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest, still, still trying to work that out. And um, it was a bit of a timeline issue. So I was a junior in high school when 9-11 happened. Um, and, you know, when you're 17, 18, you think everything exciting that's ever going to happen in the world is, you know, going to happen in the next couple of years. And that seemed kind of like the exciting thing to do. And so I went and to some extent was also kind of kicking can down the road. I thought, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. You know, I'm not going to go into the family business. Actually, my father always uh, kind of discouraged me from going into medicine. And so I, I just kind of went for it. And then actually while I was there, I went, I decided to be a Navy pilot. That was kind of why I went. I majored in aeronautical engineering. And then in 2005, Katrina hit and really kind of devastated the Gulf Coast and slowed down naval flight training, which was in Pensacola. And again, you know, I'm like just two years older and I'm looking around and my kind of older friends who went into the Marine Corps were going to war and my older friends who were pilots were kind of playing golf in Pensacola, which in retrospect probably would have been a pretty good deal. But um, I looked at it and, you know, you're just kind of anxious and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. And well, I, I did miss it for what it's worth. So I, I missed Iraq. But um, decided to go Marine Corps infantry, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, so that's, that's what I did. I did a quick stint in grad school kind of, uh, before that, but, um, yeah, joined the Marine Corps, um, did my, uh, platoon command and company command tours out in 29 Palms, California to two deployments to Afghanistan, and then head back to DC for an R and D role. I was a program manager at the office of Naval research. So I had a portfolio of kind of R and D, uh, programs that oversaw for the Marine Corps. Yeah, are there any experiences from your childhood um, that that kind of stick in your mind um, that um, have kind of shaped your worldview uh, mm. or things that you remember could be from your parents or a coach or a teacher that were really formative in how you think about the world, work, um, the role of money, uh, how we should interact as people in community? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think for me, we were raised in a very uh, like financially conservative home where, you know, kind of debt was verboten. It wasn't kind of how we thought about things. Uh, we weren't big on having IOUs out there. Um, and to some extent that drove why I went to the Naval Academy too. And that for me, I looked at it and thought, hey, here's a way that I can do it without having my parents pay, without taking on debt um, and kind of being self-sufficient and kind of self-sufficiency being a big part of uh, our values and, and how we kind of thought about it in terms of personal responsibility and, um, and being responsible for your actions. Um, so that was definitely a big driver for me. And then Actually, interestingly enough, when I was in grad school, I, I lived in a rooming house. We didn't, we didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where I needed a place for six months. I didn't have a ton of money. And, you know, again, we didn't call it a rooming house. and was sort of a, on the fancier end. But I was renting a room from a guy who owned the house. And, and that's kind of what you did. And it was short term. And it was month to month. And it was furnished. And um, now many years later, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, it's is kind of what I ended up in you know, all <laughs> along. So uh, I didn't think so at the time, didn't know it, but uh, it, it kind of came full circle for me. So grad school, Marine Corps, two tours in Afghanistan, R&D for the Marine Corps. Uh, what, what, so what are the steps between there and pad split? Sure. So when I was, uh, this would have been 2012 to 2014, I was living in D.C., I was married in 2011. Um, my wife was also, we met at the Naval Academy. She was also in the Marine Corps. So we were, you know, we spent our first year apart, actually. I was stationed in California. She was in North Carolina. I actually deployed to Afghanistan the day after our honeymoon ended. So, Goodness. yeah, although we did, we did actually see each other over there. Her, uh, she was a motor tree, uh, motor T truck platoon commander, and she actually resupplied our position a couple of times. Um, and there were no women uh, at, at our space. So it was, uh, it kind of crazed, you know, created an uproar a little bit, um, <laughs> but uh, a little supply and demand uh, challenge there. But so we, you know, we moved to DC and uh, we, or she became pregnant. So with our first child, our older son, Rudyard, who's five now. And, you know, I was kind of, again, uh, afraid of commitment, not knowing what I wanted to do. You know, what do you do after the Marine Corps? So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go to business school. That seems like a, a thing that I can postpone my decision around. And so you know, kind of went down that path and, um, and I kind of applied to McKinsey on a whim. I didn't really know anything about management consulting, but I got an offer in London and then found out that my wife was pregnant and I'm like, well, do I want to eat ramen noodles in business school or do I want to just go to work? So, so that's what I did. And so we moved to London. Our, our son was born in May. I moved to London in August and, you know, so we switched jobs, switched countries, became parents all kind of that summer and just started a whole kind of new life there um, doing that and mostly serving pharmaceutical industry, private equity, um, ministry of defense. And we spent about two years there and decided to, when we were pregnant with our second child, it was just kind of couldn't manage it again, sort of a, the housing crisis uh, again, rears its head, you know, living in London on a, on really any salary is pretty tough, but you know, we thought, you know, we need more space. We want to think about schools and kind of our long-term plan. So uh, I'm from Philadelphia again. My wife is from New Orleans. Um, I wanted to move and transfer to Philadelphia. She didn't want to live near my parents, which is which is fair. Um, <laughs> and she wanted to go to New Orleans, but McKinsey didn't have an office there. So we compromised uh, with Atlanta, which is where her brother's from, or where her brother lives now, who is now my business partner, Atticus. Oh, interesting. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I, I came to be in, in Atlanta. And 
yeah, so we moved there, transferred, and I spent about a year at McKinsey in Atlanta. And, you know, we kind of got to the point where she wanted to go back to work. I was traveling all the time, and our kids were beginning to get a little bit older. So I decided to leave and take a job at Georgia Pacific. And I ran their part of their B2B paper towel portfolio. And it was a great experience, and I loved the culture, and I was really, really bored. And I kind of went from working 60, 70, 80 hours a week to really struggling to put in 20 you know, wow. 25 and spent a lot of time at the gym, um, you know, read a lot of novels and, you know, I kind of, I was just bored. And that's kind of how uh, we began to get involved in pad split in that Atticus had a similar, so I've, again, I've known Atticus for almost 15 years now. Um, and I moved to Atlanta and we were seeing each other a whole lot. He has four boys, I have two, and we live about a mile apart. So, um, and I'd been a, an LP in some of the deals he'd been doing over the course of years, you know, in fact, still I'm in one, but he built up a portfolio of single family homes kind of starting in 2008 and then went into apartments. So I'd known him. I was not on the operating side of the business, but kind of knew his business partner and his team and, and kind of way of doing things. And he kind of got to the point after, you know, in 2016, he'd spun off the apartments and um, hired partners to run the general construction side of the business. And they started a hard money loan um, business, but he wasn't running it. And he was kind of twiddling his thumbs and I was kind of twiddling my thumbs and we, you know, meet up for lunch and he's like, Oh, I'm working on this thing. You know, I'm calling it pad split. You know, what do you think? And I was like, Oh, you know, like let's, let's find out. It seems kind of weird. You know, it seems kind of dumb. I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> so just started getting involved a little bit, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more. And at the time it was just kind of a side hustle for him. He'd, um, written a white paper for the city of Atlanta and, you know, to address affordability challenges and had gotten some traction with it and start with the prototype house in December of 2017. Um, and it was kind of a very typical story for us at the time where he'd owned a house. It was a section eight rental, kind of a older woman lived there. And all of a sudden HA, the Atlanta housing authority reached out to him and said, you know, you got to look at what's going on in the house. There's these YouTube videos, there's drugs and there's guns and, you know, there's lots going on. And sure enough, there were these rap videos and they were very low production quality for what it's worth. The one's still up on YouTube. <laughs> And, and it's terrifying, you know, as a, as a landlord, you think, oh, gosh, what's going on in this house? And, you know, it's a big problem for, in particular, larger Section 8 homes. You know, you've got the tenant, but you don't have much control over what's going on beyond that. And it's, especially the larger ones, it's an invitation to, you know, not just family, but friends of family and so on and so forth. You have a lot of people in the house and, you know, one of those bullet holes in the door, uh, lots of damage to the house, neighbors are up in arms. So he said, all right, you know, we're going to do this as a pad split. So he'd had experience running the model for really the previous 10 years. He'd kind of stumbled into it in 2009, uh, run two houses kind of on the sly and learn, learn the business. And so that became the first house. And so I started getting involved then and we found another owner to come on, um, with additional houses in February. And we just sort of started building up. And then that summer I kind of had a decision point to say, all right, is this something I'm going to do full time and commit myself fully to, or am I going to just stop and, and, uh, you know, figure out something new. And so we took the plunge, um, joined a tech accelerator that summer, tech stars in Atlanta, and then kind of built it from there. So you've had an interesting, like just personal career journey. Um, but I think it's also interesting to think about pad split, uh, you know, in the impact space. So we're, we're talking at the winter innovation summit, which is all about impact and, um, uh, an orientation towards, uh, community and how do we, how do we reconcile, uh, profit, uh, stakeholder engagement with shareholder return. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's, 
it's an okay thing that, that a person's journey or a company's journey towards impact is not, there's not one road, there's not one path. So talk to me about pad split and like its origin. Uh, did it start out with this kind of this underlying goal to solve for some of the issues of housing affordability, or was it like someone's experience or your, your, you and your brother-in-law's experiences in kind of the real estate industry recognizing, okay, there's a need. And I think there's an opportunity to, to make some money, um, in, in a, in a, in a creative model. Uh, talk to me about kind of like the reconciliation of those two things that you guys have built the business. Yeah. They, they really always went hand in hand. There was a, you know, we kind of always started with this conviction that if you wanted to create affordable housing units, there was a path to do it through subsidy, through kind of a, you know, a, a purely impact based model, but it was slow and it was painful. You had to compete for subsidies and you never could really do it the way you wanted to do it. You had to kind of, you're always kind of begging. And our kind of core conviction was if you want to do it and you want to do it big and you want to do it at a massive scale, you had to do it in a way that incentivized property owners to where they made more than they would in a market rate rental. And that was kind of how you mobilize the energy and effort and kind of um, just resources of the private investor market. So we always kind of started with that conviction, but at the same time, recognizing that for one, what we do is, um, edgy in a you know regulatory sense and it's kind of a new model and it's uh, in that change kind of challenges some people so you know people all the time ask us you know oh, you know what's your regulatory strategy how do you think about this how do you think about that and we always thought ultimately if we did it well and we did it responsibly and we created value for communities we'd be tolerated and if we didn't we would you know aggressively be <laughs> you know legislated out of existence and you know it's it's never quite that simple but we always kind of knew we had to do it in a way that demonstrated that we were helping people. And ultimately, uh, the goal wasn't just to make money. It was to, you know, kind of improve the community, improve people too. Um, and it sounds, you know, maybe a little bit pedantic or, you know, patronizing and, and that's not really the intent, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the, you know, social impact space or in the housing space, but more on the, you know, uh, philanthropic side who think, oh, okay, I, you know, eviction's a terrible thing. We don't want eviction to happen. We say, okay, agreed. But you also need to hold people accountable. You know, there's the short-term goal of how do I get paid this month, but then there's a long-term goal of how do you create better citizens and better people. And part of that is having boundaries and having expectations. And we should expect more of people, not less. You know, I think it's kind of the, you know, the, a soft form of, of bigotry and a soft form of, uh, you know, how you kind of keep people where they are um, to expect little of them and say, okay, well, you're right. You're not going to pay. I can't expect you to do that. We're going to give you some support or, Oh, I can't expect you to maintain a property. Well, that's just too hard. So, you know, we'll pick up the slack and we can't expect people to make a profit off you. So someone else have to pay. And to me, that seems like selling people short. And so while we certainly come up short ourselves plenty of time, probably every day, um, that's part of the, a big part of the goal is how do you kind of create people who not just can live in a pad split for six months or a year or two years, but can, move up the continuum of housing because ultimately, you know, people won't live in pad splits forever. The goal is to get them to be able to move in, to get their own place and get, you know, have some financial stability that they probably haven't had previously. So part of that is holding people accountable, holding people to high standards, both in terms of behaviorally and working with people and solving the problems, but also financially. I can imagine you've got 
you've got a lot of skeptics as it relates to kind of your model because it, cause it's new and edgy. And whereas kind of tenement housing has been a thing historically, uh, it's relatively new as it relates to kind of like how we think about modern, modern living, modern uh, housing. Um, what, what do you say? I mean, because and, and talk to me a little bit about the, the tension and how you, how you manage it as a, as a person and as a company, you know, managing safety. You know, one of the things we talked about yesterday, just uh, working with people that might have a criminal past and, and they deserve fair, fair and equitable housing. But there's there's there are families oftentimes living in these situations as well. And so how do you reconciling safety, reconciling equity, reconciling, um, you know, a fair chance and and, and you know, showing someone uh, demonstrated grace, but also accountability. There's. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things wrapped up in what you do. Yeah, I, and I wish I could tell you we've solved it. And that, <laughs> that would be a lie. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of ever struggling with it uh, as well. And I think what we always kind of uh, harken back to is, you know, there are hard choices and we should know what those choices are and know what the trade-offs are so that we can make intelligent choices and really kind of bring it back to people. Um, it's easy to say, you know, hey, I don't want any criminals. Okay, that's a perspective. And it's easy to say, hey, I really want to screen effectively. It's like, okay, some of these things are mutually exclusive and you need to know kind of what your what your trade-offs are and what you're really kind of uh, deciding. And ultimately, you know, people can say, I really want affordable housing in my community. Oh, but I also don't want it in my neighborhood. It's, oh, that, that's a perspective, but they're in conflict. Um, and we deal with that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So ultimately what we're trying to do is provide a, a product that um, is accountable both to neighbors to members and also to the property owners, um, to where people have choice. You know, we think choice empowers people. And ultimately, some neighborhoods aren't going to be a great fit for us and neighbors aren't going to be excited about it. And I, I understand that. Um, that's that's part of having a community and, and being able to make choices about it. Um, but ultimately, you know, property owners have rights what they do in their property and members have rights in terms of where they want to live. And the goal is to kind of make it as transparent as possible so that at least people know what choices they're making. They have you know, they can vote with their wallet. You know, if you're a member, you can move from a, a bad house to a, you know, good house. And, and that, that, uh, that way they can hold property owners accountable, property managers accountable, which is very important. So it is, we do face a lot of skeptics and, you know, I, we ultimately try and present choices to people as, as fairly as possible. And, you know, whether it's a, a politician who says, you know, Hey, I really care about affordable housing, but I don't like what you do. And we're like, okay, well, you know, what, what do you propose? <laughs> you know, these are, these are your choices or, you know, to the community, you know, we, there are people in the affordable housing advocacy space who say, you know, I don't like what you're doing. I think people should all have their own, you know, their own subsidized place. They should all have their own house and say, okay, great. What are you cutting? You know, you're going to cut education, you're going to cut infrastructure. I mean, I'm all ears, you know, happy to talk about it, but these are hard choices and they're scarce resources. So we should think about it. And, you know, ultimately, you know, same thing with neighbors. Neighbors will say, well, I, you know, I don't want this in my neighborhood potentially. And say, okay, fine. Um, you want it to be a section eight rental? Do you want it to be a different kind of rental? You know, what what's going to be responsive to you and your needs? And ultimately, you know, there are choices to make. There's no kind of right answer. There, there are trade-offs in all of it. And uh, we just more want to have the conversation. I think if we can get to that point, we can usually kind of muddle along. And if we <laughs> don't get to the conversation, we're, we're probably done. You'd mentioned you were somewhat bored and then, you know, your brother-in-law, you've known him for years. He kind of conceived of this idea and started mm-hmm. kind of jumped in. Um, but you've been at it for a while now, personally. 
And so there's the, there's the, okay, I'm bored. I want to do something different and exciting, but you're doing this thing called pad split, which is pretty interesting. Um, what, tell me about the day you realized this was something you personally were interested in continuing to, to push forward, uh, and something that you were personally interested in, uh, you know, committing yourself to. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, and I, again, I really kind of, uh, got started kind of full time to where I, you know, ratcheted back up to the, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks in kind of July of, of 2018 now. So about a year and a half ago. And I think really over that summer, kind of in the fall when, you know, things began to pick up and we began to get interest. And I think what kind of validated it for me, cause I always was involved with the members, especially early on where, you know, I was, we were kind of, we were all kind of doing everything, everything from plunging toilets to answering the phones to collections and then the whole bit. Um, so I was always very engaged in that side, but, you know, I had my own sense of skepticism to say, you know, is this really a winner? You know, can we do this? Can you scale at all these challenges? And then come that fall, we started to try and raise money. And it was really kind of in those first, uh, as we tried to quantify it for investors and outside investors to say, you know, this is why we think it can be really big. This is why we can think, why we think it can't just work in West Atlanta where we got our start, but all of Metro Atlanta every major metro area. This is why we think it could be big and kind of pressure testing those ideas with some smart folks. And, you know, all of a sudden you fast forward a couple of months and we've, you know, we raised the seed round and like, wow, maybe, maybe this isn't so insane. You know, other people are into it and, you know, began to sort of catch on and, and there's a lot of momentum in this kind of world where, you know, you get one believer and then you've got three and then you've got three and then you've got 10 and there's just a lot of uh, momentum to, to any kind of success. And, you know, all of a sudden, it, I don't think there was one kind of epiphany, but, you know, you, you know, all of a sudden look at yourself and think, oh, you know, this has some legs maybe, and this is not, you know, crazy. And people who are serious are actually, you know, returning our calls and, and the whole bit. And, you know, it, it was more of a slow realization of think, hey, this, I think this thing has legs and I think it really help people. And I think I saw recently Padsplit was listed as a kind of a top innovator uh, in kind of some of the housing, housing issues. So talk to me about some of the challenges that you guys are facing presently, you know, in 2020, like what, what are some like, granted there's, there's some traction and you're picking up uh, some new pilot cities and different things like that. But what are some of the challenges you're facing right now as a company? Yeah. How much time do we got? No, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we have a few, I mean, uh, or we have a lot really. Um, so on, you know, we're two sided marketplace. We've kind of the, the demand side, so to speak, the member side, and then the supply side, the, the property uh, owner side, and they each have their own unique challenges and, and, you know, some of the differences. And I mean, so on the member side, the supply side, we have a fundamental challenge of balancing uh, accessibility and screening, for example. Um, you know, how do you do really sophisticated credit scoring for a population that's 40% unbanked? How do you mm-hmm. um, do that well in a way that still admits a lot of people? Um, it's easy to make sure you have zero credit risk. You can just take nobody. That's an option. Uh, bad for occupancy rate, but you know, how do you optimize around that? Um, and then all through the process, how do you build a simple, easy to use product that is very clear for a population that one does it almost all on mobile, um, doesn't have a lot of financial capacity, doesn't have a ton of technical literacy, um, oftentimes doesn't have uh, a credit card, maybe they prepaid debit, or, you know, they change debit cards all the time, because they're getting them from different sources, and so on. And how do you balance that off uh, all the fraud prediction software that says, you know, if someone uses four credit cards, they're probably stealing. 
well, okay, how do you adjust that for what you're doing, but still protect, you know, the bottom line? So how do you kind of do that well for a market that's really broadly misunderstood or not understood at all by, um, by the fintech community? So that's, that's definitely a big challenge. Mm. And ultimately, so that's kind of on the ingress side. And then for the operations of the house, I mean, there's some fundamental challenges within co-living. You know, just as an example, if you're in normal property management or um, just a normal landlord, if someone does something in a house, it's bad, but, you know, they they put wet wipes down the toilet or, or break something. Well, one, you know who did it, right? It's the people in the house. And even if it was their friends or a, a guest, well, it's still on you. So they did it. You know who to hold accountable. If there's If you need to charge somebody, you know who to charge. And the people who are suffering the brunt of it can kind of look in the mirror and say, okay, well, this is on us. So it's, it's much easier for us. If a toilet backs up and there's a problem, one, you don't know who to point the finger at, you know, you can find everybody. It makes you wildly unpopular. I can, I can tell you from experience. (laughs) And ultimately, you know, if it's six people in a house, five people who did nothing wrong are dealing with the problem. So there's just a, a really difficult accountability and transparency problem that is in co-living. And it's not as though, you know, the person who caused the problem is like, you know what, that was me. Everyone point the finger. Um, and that's a challenge. I mean, it's part of living in a house with other people. I, I also live in a house with four other people. I mean, I'm in a co-living situation. I just happen to be the only person paying. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, we're used to it and, you know, I've, I have two young boys. So there, there are occasionally things that are put in the toilet, you know, that, that happens. Um, but again, like it's it's much easier to handle in a family and in a more cohesive unit, um, and much harder in, in a co-living situation with people who are not necessarily strangers once they're living there, but are strangers when they come in and don't have the same kind of level of trust and accountability within the group. So that's that's a big challenge. Um, collections is a very difficult business um, in the de- in the demographic we're in. It's uh, it's never easy and you're fundamentally dealing with people with a low level of financial security, a low level of job stability, um, who frankly don't have a high level of financial literacy, ability to budget, um, who sometimes err and are human and, uh, and ultimately have less capacity to get past those uh, errors when they make them. So, you know, they have a bad day and spend too much money on something. Well, that's much harder for someone who has a higher income. So that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. So yeah, plenty of challenges on the member side and we're kind of always struggling through it. Um, On the supply side, we probably, from the start, we were probably overly concerned with uh, legitimizing slumlords, I think is kind of the the polite way to put it. Um, So we're probably overly cautious and we put a lot of controls in terms of who we would work with and who we would trust to put properties on our platform. And ultimately we've been pretty impressed with um, who who we've gotten to work with, but I would say there's still an element of how do you really convince folks to not necessarily do the right thing, but to think through all of the challenges. And it's easy for me to say, cause this is all I do 24 seven. And I think, you know, Oh, what kind of weird lock would help with this situation? Or, you know, how should you lock a thermostat to control utility spend? And I'm sort of a nerd about this stuff and that's okay. <laughs> but for your kind of retail investor, who's, you know, maybe owns a couple houses or even a, you know, sub-institutional investor who has a portfolio of 50 to a couple hundred homes, who really knows a lot about the business, they're used to doing things a certain way. And ultimately, single-family property management or being a landlord is is pretty simple. And, you know, certain things kind of fix themselves. You get a tenant, they're kind of responsible for a lot of the stuff in the house. Um, we, you know, our owners have to turn on utilities. That's a challenge. You have to get Wi-Fi installed. You have to think through smart locks and how to connect them to the internet. And 
none of the individual things are particularly difficult, but enough of them add up that, you know, they, they make mistakes, they miss things. And, you know, ultimately you have to kind of balance, you know, driving these people and holding them really accountable and freaking out when they do something wrong and also being like, okay, you're a customer too. We need to work through it and, and everything. So, so that's certainly a problem. And then kind of in the midst of that, the whole fundraising and building a product and, you know, managing uh, a technical product that is um, a work in progress that you build from scratch and, you know, the whole normal startup company stuff that is always a just dumpster fire every day. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not busy. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. So I think the the problems you're trying to solve are are pretty big. Uh, So what I do personally is I I have a couple of stories that I lock away, uh, like successes where like, okay, I remind myself of these things and Mm -hmm. kind of make it worth it. Uh, Do you have any stories like that of folks, members that you've worked with or situations that uh, have been really like, wow, okay, this is why I do this? Yeah. I mean, the one that we really uh, like to think about a lot is uh, this woman, Laura, who's been with us for about two years, essentially the whole time. She's one of our first members. And, you know, she was really a, um, almost a defining story for us in a lot of ways. And, you know, she's a pastry chef at SCAD in Midtown Atlanta. She was working about two days a week because she was commuting from Griffin, Georgia, which is about two hours south of Atlanta. So good ways. And she's kind of emblematic of your drive till you qualify kind of renter because um, that was a pl- you know cheapest place that she could afford. And so, you know, she had a good job, but she couldn't work a ton of hours. And in the summer, when her hours were cut, she slept at the airport. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, I used to fly out of the airport every single week. And, you know, you'd see people in the winter and you're like, man, why is it, uh, why does it kind of smell bad in the food mm-hmm. court? And it's like, well, that's where homeless people go when it's cold. You know, it's where, where they hang out because it's the one place where it will let people in. So, you know, she was one of those people, really, kind of hanging out in the airport lobby. And so she did that for four straight summers. Goodness. And then she found us. And that was very early on. We were, you know, posting rooms on Craigslist. We probably looked pretty fly by night, to be honest. But she took a chance on us. And, you know, she's she's probably, I, I guess I could have looked it up. She's probably in her late 40s. Um, she's never going to make a ton of money. She's never going to be much for budgeting. We've spent a lot of time and energy kind of, reminding her to pay and talking her through and payment plans and this and that. But, you know, here we are two years later, she's had a roof over her head the entire time. She's been able to work more hours. She's been a more productive citizen and, you know, it's still a struggle and she's not there. You know, it's never a completed project where you say, okay, now Laura's got a house in the suburbs. You know, she's got a Mercedes Benz. Like none of that is true, but you know, she's, she's changed her life in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's, She's built habits that um, will hopefully benefit her, you know, even when she's left Pat's Blue, hopefully. Um, so we refer to them as graduations when people eventually save up enough to get their own place. Um, sometimes, you know, get a car, get a down payment on an apartment, you know, that sort of thing, or, or a security deposit. And, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, but she's kind of emblematic of that. And then on the owner side, actually our first owner um, is a woman named Heather who you know, she is an interior decorating business. She would stage houses for folks and she was not really a real estate investor, but you know, she's kind of like kind of crazy enough to give us a try. And she was our first uh, kind of external owner. And so she bought a house, fixed it up herself, got it ready and made enough money to do another one and then another one and then another one and then another one. And now she's at the point where it was kind of a retirement plan. She's not a big shot and she's not a 
super sophisticated investor. She doesn't have institutional backing, but she kind of, you know, chased it, did it on the side, did it while working a job. And, you know, she's, she's a mom, you know, she's just kind of doing her thing, but now she's at the point where she is essentially passive income and has helped a lot of people too. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. How many, how many graduates do you have at this point? You know, it's interesting. We don't really track it as comprehensive as, as okay. comprehensively as we would like. Cause, uh, for better or for worse, a lot of times, you know, people leave and they don't really respond too much after that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've had, uh, certainly on the order of dozens. I mean, it's, awesome. um, but yeah, we're, we're always trying to seek that elusive percentage. Um, it's a hard thing to chase. Isn't yeah, it? no kidding. <laughs> um, um, so talk, so one of my heroes, and I've mentioned this before on another podcast, mm-hmm. but, uh, is, is Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no offense. I was an army officer. Yeah, so. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't hold it against you. <laughs> so of course he's my, he's my hero. So, but what I love about him, and I think a lot of, a lot of great leaders is they have, they have a very defined narrative and a North star that kind of guides who they are, the way they make decisions and what they're about. And, and I think, I think about it too, as a father and you're a father as well. Like what are those principles that I want my children to, to inherit? Like, what am I trying to instill in them? I've got 18 years before they go off into the world, so Mm -hmm. to speak. So, so with your boys, uh, what are some, some kind of guiding principles that that you think are are really important to you and, and things that you'd like to, to instill in the next generation? Yeah. I mean, I think first for me with, with my sons is to see the good in people, um, which is probably because I really struggle with it. And I'm, you know, I'm naturally kind of very skeptical. I'm naturally a little bit mistrustful. And so it's something that I kind of labor with and, and really kind of struggle with. So something that I always try to instill in them that it's, it's very easy to be kind of, uh, you know, hard hearted or to be mistrustful and to kind of watch your back and so on. And, and ultimately, you know, it doesn't make you happy. I don't think it makes you successful. So I think in part, because I, again, really kind of, uh, am mindful of it and struggle with it is to, you know, see the good in people, take people as they are, um, you know, accept flaws and, you know, not to be uh, foolish about it, but to, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. And it's kind of a core conviction that most people are fundamentally good. Um, they may err. In fact, they, they certainly will uh, from time to time. But, you know, I do believe strongly that most people are at least trying to do the right thing. And, you know, they, they will fall short often, um, but not nearly as often as, as we tend to think. Um, so that's certainly one. Um, and you know, this, this almost goes, uh, against it, but is, is really just to work hard. You know, I've, uh, I've never really kind of prided myself on being particularly talented or, um, clever or certainly lucky, but you know, I've always been able to outwork people and that's kind of the one tried and true method. Maybe it's because it's the only thing I know, but you know, there's, it's easy to kind of complain. It's easy to kind of, uh, worry about it or hope for things, but, you know, ultimately you can put in the work and that's kind of, a uh, the big one, uh, for me and, you know, what I kind of try to instill in them and, um, which is hard, you know, especially for young books, they're like, this is stupid, you know, work is dumb, but, uh, you know, to the extent that you can. And, and part of that really is just kind of, uh, is role modeling in my mind. And that, uh, actually kind of get back to your question around what I thought I learned growing up. Uh, it kind of came to me late, I think, but, you know, I don't believe anyone really listens to what you say. I think they see what you do and kind of, uh, you know, mimic it, but really like actions matter. And ultimately that's, you know, no one, 
no one really listens, I think. They just kind of see what you do. So it's all kind of role modeling. And when I think about my father, you know, I think of him working. You know, that's kind of what I saw. He worked long hours, he worked really hard, and he cared. And he never really talked about it. Uh, maybe he complained about it. I don't know. But um, <laughs> he certainly, you know, he put in the hours, he put in the work. And, you know, I don't know. You know, I didn't really think about it much growing up. But, you know, I look back now, and, you know, now I'm older than he was when he had me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I saw my dad working all the time. Like he, he knew how to put in the hours and get things done and, you know, knows the grindstone. So that's, that's kind of a big um, piece of it. And then I think lastly is just to um, like kind of look within and take personal responsibility. You know, it's, it's very easy for people to find an external tormentor and to blame things on either other people or circumstances or luck and, you know, ultimately we're, you know, we create our own reality and it doesn't mean you can't have bad luck. It doesn't mean people can't wrong you or work against you. And you know, all that's true, but you know, ultimately you're responsible for your actions. It's all that you can control and doesn't do you any good or make you happy to kind of blame other people or circumstances. So you just take ownership and, and do it. That's great. So, uh, kind of in closing the, uh, the, the problem you are working to solve, um, through pad split housing affordability. Mm-hmm. It's a major issue. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the, the most significant challenges facing our country today. There's just the number of units that, uh, that we need to, to properly house our citizens uh, in an equitable fashion. If, if you could fast forward uh, 20 years, um, what would you, what could you conceive of uh, as things that, that need to adjust or alter? Um, what, what is going to get us to that more perfect uh, state where, where housing is a human right, uh, that people have equitable housing that gives them um, safety and security mm-hmm. uh, and an ability to participate more fully in their community? What does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, the way that I think about it is there's only three ways to reduce the cost of housing. And ultimately, the cost of housing is borne by people, either the people living there or kind of third party, you know, government or, or otherwise. Um, and those three ways, you know, one is to take cost out, you know, which oftentimes means reducing requirements. So that's tricky. And we're a little bit in that business, right? It's, uh, you know, sharing space, reducing the amount of square footage per person. Um, second is to operate more efficiently, which is really, really hard, um, especially when you're talking about equitable housing and local control, but part of it is standardization, you know, modular housing is kind of in that, in that business. And, you know, how do you essentially squeeze, you know, sweat your assets a little bit more efficiently. And then the last is to utilize uh, wasted space or utilize underused assets. Um, so companies like Nesterly are like that. We're a little bit in that way in terms of claiming wasted space within houses. And there's no, all of those entail hard choices. Um, and so what I would love to see in the next, you know, six months, year, five years, 10 years, 20 years is for people to identify what choices they want to make and, and be open to making some of those hard choices. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, housing requirements and it's a really loaded topic because, you know, one man's uh, onerous requirement that drives cost is another person's regulation that keeps people safe. You know, so there's you know, it's easy to kind of poison the well. And I think that's what a lot of people do. Um, But, you know, those are choices that people should be clear eyed about. And so for me, I think of it, you know, pad splits never going to 
single-handedly solve the affordable housing crisis. I think we part of that solution, hopefully a big part of that solution. Um, but no matter what the solution is, it's going to be, you know, looking into changes and be w- being willing to accept some risk in certain areas to kind of drive that. So, you know, thinking about our thing hard about our requirements, whether it's required parking spaces to construction methods to, you know, how we think about risk and financing and, um, that whole uh, piece of the pie. Um, so there's, you know, ditto for local control. I mean, it's again, one man's nimbyism is another person's caring about their community. I mean, they're, they're kind of two states, the same coin. And we all um, want a little bit of both, you know, no one is purely nimbyism. No one's purely local control. You know, we all have a balance that we think is reasonable. And so what I would prefer is really just that we have an open and honest conversation about it and for people to understand what those things mean. Um, and same thing for, you know, rent controls. I mean, again, are, do rent controls keep rent down? Well, for the people who are currently in a place, but they drive costs up for the the person who aren't in those places. So, you know, really understanding what those choices mean and having it less be, uh, less be about ideology and being reactive and just kind of being clear-eyed about the choices that we're making. And I think if we can have that conversation and be honest and open about really what the problems are and the choices that we have to make, I think we can you know, it won't ever be perfect. I'm, I'm not uh, of that persuasion, I think, where I think it'd be perfected, but I think we'd be in a much better place. Frank Furman is the COO of PadSplit, a startup out of Atlanta, working to make housing more affordable by turning traditional properties into pay-by-the-week rooming houses. To learn more, check out padsplit.com. If you like what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. And if you would like to learn more about an upcoming competition to win $100,000 in investment capital, go to render.capital slash competition. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.